Welcome to this BJSM podcast. I'm Stefan Griffin, a medical student at the University of Birmingham and an associate editor of the British Journal of Sports Medicine. And I've got two giants of the rugby medicine world. We've got Dr. Martin Rapidry, Chief Medical Officer of World Rugby, and Dr. Ross Tucker, who's the Senior Scientist of World Rugby. So at this conference, we've heard a lot of news about rugby and concussion, and, it's come in for, and rugby's come in for wide praise. So first of all, I think what we'll go into is Dr. Rafferty, would you mind just taking us through the journey that rugby's been through in regards to concussion? Over recent years, what we've tried to do is to identify what the, how bad the injury is and, and looked at the incidents. But in order to do that properly, we had to go back and make sure that we educated people about what concussion was. Because we recognise there's been a lot of research um, leading up to 2012 which showed that the recognition of concussion was, was poor and that the way that they were then managed on the field was also poor. So we started off to say, okay, how can we improve the recognition and how can we improve the management? And we've done that by, at the elite level, by introducing our pitch side assessment called the head injury assessment, and at the community level by, by promoting, recognise and remove. Okay, and the rugby is sort of widely published sort of all over the world, various unions, in regards to the recognise, remove and the various educational campaigns. Have you seen that progress over the past few years? Well, yeah, I think the first thing we had to do was to develop the process first and develop our, our, what, what, our, what we're going to educate people around, and we did that. The recognised and removes um, mantra is actually coming out now in, in other international sports. They're, they're using that same terminology, which is good. But we also took that and translated into, I think, 11 different nation, different languages. So we, we, are, we have a world sport, so we have to have a dissemination across the world. Okay. And more recently, rugby's been in the it's been you know, popular in the press as, as well as in sports medicine events with the recent rule changes. Um, to some people working in other sports, that might sound quite drastic. Can you both sort of take us through the process of how how those are implemented? Well, that was well stated to start. You know what what we've done over the last five years is to make sure we identify what the true incidence was by increasing our recognition and improving the management of the pitch side. And we've seen an increase in the incidence of concussion or the reported incidence of concussion. We think that that's now near what it should have been five years ago. So in other words, there hasn't been an increase in the injury rates, just an increase in the reporting rates. And that's the first step in trying to, to manage any injury, so is to identify what, how big the problem is. The next step is then to do the research to understand what causes those injuries, and that's what Ross has, has led us through in the last, last 12 months. Yeah, so that takes us to prevention as opposed to recognition after the fact. So we're talking primary prevention. And what was really important to know is how they happen. Because any intervention that you bring in, let's say you understand that the injury is caused by event A, <clears throat> you need to know very carefully that you're not going to replace it with event B, which might be even more likely to cause the injury. So creating a landscape or a spectrum of risk from high to low was really important so that we could make an informed recommendation around this is where we want to shift to and away from. So the process was, let's try and understand exactly how these head injuries are occurring. And we can do that because every single time a head injury assessment is initiated, um, and, and for, those, for the uninitiated, the HI process is basically a player on the field who sustains a head injury which either forces them to be permanently removed because they uh, fulfill one of 11 criteria one signs, things like ataxia, convulsion, loss of consciousness, or they have to be removed from the field for 10 minutes for what's called the, the uh, sideline assessment, based upon which 
They could be permanently removed or they could return to play. In any of those instances, they become a case for the study. So we have video evidence, uh, video footage of how the head injury happened, and we also know that it happened because it had to be documented through a database that we managed. So, so the linking up of the case to the actual video is what allowed us to do the study. So we, we sit down with researchers, some coaches, some, some game analysts, and, and we looked at previous papers and we said, what are the things that we need to study? So, for example, we need to know what type of tackle, how fast the players were moving, what was the direction of the tackle, what was the relative body position of the tackler and the ball carrier, uh, what are some of the others? We, which player was accelerating? How many were there? So, you name it, we, we tried, tried to basically analyze it. We had a professional analyst who is employed by World Rugby and he coded these, as well as 3,160 non-injurious tackles. So we could now compare the tackles that caused injury to those that did not and work out what's a true propensity, which is really powerful. And then based on that, uh, once the analysis had been completed and reviewed internally by independent scientists, we then put that, those findings to a group of people who are better placed than a scientist or a doctor to actually make suggestions. And that is really important because we, we got into a room, some really top level coaches, players, referees, other officials, and we said to them, these are the 10 riskiest situations in the sport. These are the situations that are most likely to cause a head injury what do you think we should do about them to reduce that risk? And that was, that was basically from A to Z. <coughs> well, we're not at Z. That was A to M. And their recommendations at point M were to change the law, which is what happened at the beginning of this year. And moving forward, we now have further questions that, that we'll, we'll look to address based on that study. Okay. And this study itself, do you mind taking some of the listeners through what were the, the riskiest tackles involved in, in rugby? Yeah, sure. So, type of tackle... Uh, active shoulder. So those who watch rugby will, will appreciate what this means. The 99% of tackles in the sport are either active, passive shoulder, or what's called a smother tackle, where the, the tackler tries to wrap the, the ball carrier up and, and prevent him from passing the ball. So the active shoulder tackle is the one where the tackler tries to drive the ball carrier backwards. It's, the, it's obviously their tackle that is most dominant in the sport. Uh, that one's got the highest risk, twice as high as the other two. Uh, tackles from the front are more risky than from the side angle and behind. Um, if the tackler is accelerating, it poses the highest risk in the game. The ball carrier accelerating, or either or both players, uh, uh, neither or both, has a significantly lower risk. And all these things, will I'll tell you what the significance is in a moment. Uh, speed of the tackler is a major predictor of injury risk. The faster the tackler goes, the higher the risk of injury. The height of the tackle, because when you look at head contact, head to head, head to shoulder, so that would be head contacts above the line of the chest almost, they have a, a risk that is four times higher than tackles below that line. And then the body position is really important because the, the tackler being bent at the waist and the ball carrier bent at the waist have got the lowest risk. And the converse is that if they're upright, that poses what is the highest overall risk for the, for the sport. So. The collection of those things was really interesting because the, the law as it's written, people will appreciate, is mostly written to protect the ball carrier. You know, no high tackles because you're trying to protect the guy with the ball's head. But, but our findings suggest that when there are upright tackles, higher contacts, the tackler's actually more at risk than the ball carrier. So we had to think about how we could get the tackler lower down. We discussed how do we slow the tackler down. 
because obviously if we can reduce the speed and the acceleration, but I think for obvious reasons that's a lot more difficult to do than to introduce a law amendment or, or change that can try and change the technique and the position. So it's not off the table, um, and in the future we will, we will discuss how we might change coaching and education and technique in order to address some of those issues because speed, I mean if injury is defined as the transfer of energy, speed is obviously going to be a factor so you don't need to do a two year long study to prove the obvious. But, but the, the point I'm trying to make is that we, we, we then had all these criteria and it was quite clear that we had to do something that would change the behaviour of the tackler and the, the, the low hanging fruit as it were is to change the behavior of the tackler by, by, by almost compelling him to get in a lower body position and to tackle below a certain point by being a lot harsher on when that tackle is too high. The key thing is that protects both players. The media portrayed it like we were trying to protect the ball carrier but that the tackler would come off worse. Our data says both players will be protected if the tackle is lowered. For those that, that, that followed the game, it ended up with more penalties, more more cars from from an anecdotal point of view, anecdotal point of view, and that's been picked on by the media. Are you assessing metrics, looking at how the, the impact of the, the new rule changes and things? Yeah. So as we go month by month, competition by competition, I get the metrics of how many penalties have been given for high tackles, and what's called in the law dangerous charging, which is a no arm tackle above the shoulders. Uh, I get the data for yellow cards for the same offences and red cards. And as I say, I've got that per competition and by month. And so what I'll be able to do is compare 2016 under the old law to 2017 under the new law for every single competition and, and track those relationships that we'll look at and see. But yeah, the number of penalties has gone up, uh, good. The number of cards has gone up, some people say not good, but if you're going to change behavior, that, that has to happen. And, you know, when we met with the working group, the, the coaches and the players understood that this would be the result, but they understand that this is a necessary result to, on the path of trying to change behavior. And, it, and again, it's a point Martin and I make often, is that if, we'd, if we as scientists and medics had made those suggestions, then the resistance to them would have been substantially higher. But because they came from respected voices, who had authority to make them as present coaches, players, past players and so on, that, that lent them weight and in the face of that weight the criticism I think has been a lot lower and easier to deflect than it would have been otherwise. Yeah. It was also interesting to, to point out that um, the recommendations were far more stringent than what we thought that they would recommend. The coaches and the players were very um, keen to make sure that the players were more protected so they were the ones that actually recommended the, the introduction of new sanctioning categories and the increasing sanctions for, for existing tackles. Not, not an easy process, rugby is such a traditional game. You've mentioned some of the challenges, are there any others that, that sort of caused a, some, sort of, some form of headache that you had to work through to, to get these implemented? Well I guess it, the, the one that's obvious is the changes in the uh, engagement laws um, and that's if they were brought in Start initially in, in 2007, I think there was a change, there was another change in 2011 and recently. And this, those changes, we've tracked those, the injury rates um, via the New Zealand, they've got a, a national insurance scheme. So we can look at injuries, uh, cervical spine injuries and other injuries related to the scrum over periods of time. And that's shown a significant reduction in injury rates. So whilst there initially may be a, a, an alteration in the way that the game is played, it's only small. 
and the, the coaches and the players tend to adapt to that. But what, we're, what our focus is to bring about change and improve safety. One of the big challenges with any of these issues, and it's not unique for rugby, is that there's an emotional response which is immediate, and then there's a data-driven objective response that is delayed. So when Will Smith appears in Hollywood in a movie about concussion, there's an emotional response to that, and the media pressure and the public pressure increases at a rate that sometimes the evidence can't always respond to immediately. And part of our objective is to try and get the data out as effectively as possible in a way that communicates that actually we're trying to manage this risk. It's not as though we are under siege and under attack and not trying to do anything about it, you know. So it's a proactive approach, but the rate at which those two things happen is quite different. So that's a challenge. And the portrayal in the media compared to the reality is quite different. And having been at this conference now for two days, I see it in other sports as well, have the same problem, is that they're actually doing a lot, but the media and this is, the, this is the power of narrative, is one, one tragic concussion case or spinal cord injury trumps years' worth of data in the, in the way it's portrayed by the media. So we have to, our, our attitude is always evidence-based, not emotion-based. I think it's important that we, in 2012 when we, we started this process, we said we'd base our decisions on, on evidence, not emotion. And for us to make quick decisions and not collect the data, and collecting data takes a long time, you know, it's taken us from 2012 through to now to collect a significant amount of data to make recommended changes, to do research that's required to be making those evidence-based recommendations. In the process, if I just talk about one of the other things that we've done over, the, over this time is, is the education. And like, we've, if we go back and look at the data on our, on our learning modules within the, the uh, World Rugby website, you know, over 250,000 people have gone through concussion education so we're making significant grounds. We've had uh, close to 5,000 medics go through our elite level education modules. Now if we take that 100, if we look at that being 100 uh, countries around the world, we're looking at 50 people at the elite level of the game, and we're talking about the professional level of the game, who've gone through education. So that's, a, that's probably the under-recognised, um, um, probably in the most important change that we've made in the last, last uh, four or five years. We're now getting down to the point again where we're starting to look at how can we actually make better changes that bring about and improve the safety of, of the players. Um, and again, what we can do is in the bio of the product, we can do quite, quite widely disseminate some of the, some of the resources for the, for the listeners as well. Um, so the, you, there's been a sort of, the, you said that since 2012 you've been collecting all this data, so it's been what, five, five years? What, what does the next sort of five, ten years hold for rugby and what, what are the plans in terms of, from a player welfare point of view? Well, in the immediate short term, and when I say short term, I'm talking one year, right? Is, for instance, we have to evaluate the, the tackle law. And uh, that'll only be a preliminary evaluation in one year. And, and the outcome of interest is head injuries and concussions. So we will be able to track whether the number of head injury and head injury events and concussions have gone down. So that's an outcome. Uh, and then we continue the injury surveillance. I think there are some things we need to look at doing around injury surveillance with a uh, that link to the prevention. You know, so I think we've been very good for a long time at surveilling, especially in our own tournaments, and the RFU do a very comprehensive injury surveillance, but we've discussed in recent weeks the idea of taking this to the community game, in particular at the youth level, injury surveillance, and then not just to measure what's happening, but to try and figure out ways to link surveillance to prevention. So this is a, this is a thing we need to look at. 
The longitudinal health aspects are obviously critical. It's heavily debated in the media, not just the CTE, Will Smith concussion type stuff, but also other outcomes of playing rugby when, when people are 40 years post retirement. So these are, these are issues that we need to start discussing and, and addressing, and we'll seek to collaborate with various partners on, on initiating those, those studies. And, and uh, it's, yeah, I'm not going to say consensus documents, but we want to we want to have a collaborative discussion with various role players and stakeholders around the world. So I think that will be a key area. I guess another key area is that we'll be looking at probably in the short term is to look at the technique um, issues associated with those high-risk tackles. And once we've finished that particular component of the research, um, then we'll be bringing together the, the elite defensive coaches from around the world to give us advice about how we can actually improve um, uh, technique in those specific areas and then the step after that we then then how do we disseminate that information so there's we've still got a long way to go with, with some of the research that we've, we've, we've finished we're halfway through but we need to we're moving forward so it's not this is not you know the, the changes in the, the sanctioning and the, the new sanctions are not the end of what we're doing it's kind of just the beginning Okay, it sounds like you've got your, your hands full there for a, a good period of time. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think that ties in nicely with one of the main messages from this conference, really, I think most evidence will take away is that in terms of from a compliance point of view, for any sort of um, preventative programme that you, know, you need buy-in from stakeholders, such as coaches and the athletes themselves, and it seems like, you know, again, World Rugby and the, the rugby world is sort of quite heavily involved and quite prominent in that area. Um, is there anything else that you want me to ask or touch upon? I would just stress what you said there at the end, the compliance and the buy-in. You get that before you start. You don't do the study and then seek to get the buy-in, right? Because mm -hmm. at that point you're going to go to the people that you're relying on to implement and you are going to hope that they agree with A, the problem, B, your process of solving the problem, and D, and C, the solution to the problem. Now, if they don't agree to all three of those, then you're your wonderful concept is, is stillborn, you know? So you have to get the buy-in at the beginning. And for us, that was not difficult because as World Rugby, as the custodian of the sport, recognizes its own problem. So it can solve its own problem with the support of various stakeholders. And we're lucky that the member unions agree. You know, it's not like we're trying to coax people into coming along a journey with us. Everyone's on the same page. but. That may not be the case for some other sports, and it certainly isn't going to be the case for all institutions or, or research groups. So the idea that you start without buy-in to me is, you might get lucky, but you'd be far better off asking people what their problems are and then figuring out how to solve them together. Then you do the research and then you ask them based on research to help you solve them. Yeah. No, I think that that last point is a key point. You have to go back to the sport yeah. to get the solutions. The scientists and the medics can't provide the solutions. We can help break down and, and identify what the high-risk areas are, but they must provide the solutions. And if you do that, then I think your compliance and your acceptance goes up. Okay. And that's the perfect, perfect way to end the podcast. Gentlemen, thank you so much for, um, for joining us. Cool. Thanks. Thank you. uh, you've been listening to BJSM Podcast um, from Sunny Monaco. Uh, we hope you tune in again soon and have a fantastic day.